you have to get to the point where you try something and even, even if you're not sure. I wrote a book called Start Now, Get Perfect Later, because so many people are looking to be perfect and having all their ducks in a row before they start, and you never start. Mr. Moore. Matt, how you doing? <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to your wonderful studio in Peterborough. Thank you for inviting me on your show. It's a very special one for me because anyone who's listening to this um, or anyone who's listened to any of the episodes, really the, the gentleman sitting next to me on my right is the reason why, why we're here today. So uh, I'd like to thank you very much for that. Five years? Five years. Ah, yeah. Look what I brought to celebrate. Oh. But you don't drink, Wendy says, so we'll just... Um... <laughs> well, it, well, it's worth me kind of breaking my non-drinking. Um, I'm, I'm not totally off it, but I'm kind of going through periods where I control it a little bit. So yeah. uh, psychedelics only, you know, that's what it is now. Well, maybe we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so it's, so, it's, so it's five years and I was... Um, and I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to many people, but I was... You... Um, when you say, how long have you been going doing your podcast for now? Um, I think we're in our eighth year. Eighth year. Yeah. I couldn't tell you the exact month. But yeah, our eighth year. Right. And yeah. I was in, you invited me to be a guest on there, which was a very nerve wracking experience, I remember. And, and it's still out there. And um, yeah, and, and that was the reason to, um, for me, it was, I, I think you kind of convinced me to say, well, look, you know, give it a, give it a go. And mm. uh, I agreed to do it for one year. And I'm now five years in. And it's been a good thing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's been um, it's it's been I, I guess it's been life changing really mm. for so many for the relationships that I've met and uh, and the things that I've learned. Uh, I, I, I think it's very it's very unusual to to be able to to speak to someone that's very successful in, in in any different ways, whether it's from for their health, whether business or whatever, and 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 just pummel them with with any questions you've dreamed to ask, and then they just tell you. I don't mm. normally you pay a lot of money to people like yourself. For that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forty grand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Po- Podcasting is one of the best things I do in my life. It's great the people you meet and the things you learn. Um, you sort of you have the best seat when you interview someone because. The guests obviously get a lot of information, but you're there firsthand learning. And one mistake I used to make, I mean, we were already friends before the both of us started podcasting just, but because um, my agent deals with a lot of stuff and guest booking and things like that, I didn't always stay in touch with the guest because they, the, my agent would have their number and it was all a bit, you know, the bigger the guests, the harder they are to sort of organize time-wise. But um, I made a commitment now that every single guest I have, I will follow up properly with. Because like Kevin Clifton, who was on my show, he's obviously famous from Strictly Come Dancing. He's become one of my best friends. Um, Jake Wood, who was on my show, who's, who used to be Max Branning, the big star baddie in EastEnders, he's become one of my best friends. So it quite often did naturally happen, but I never really used to pursue it. But now I do stay in touch with everyone that I can that's been on my show and you have a, get a pretty powerful network, don't you, in the end? Yeah, yeah, you do, mm. definitely. I was, you're, I guess you're known for things surrounding success, whether it's financial success or success in your property business. And a lot of the stuff you talk about is how to be more successful in many areas. And last night, as I was researching and putting some questions together, I was watching an interview you did with the billionaire Gypsy. Mm. Alfie, exactly. yeah, he's become my friend as well. Thanks to the podcast, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting guy, and and, uh, and 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 something he was talking about was um, was success is like a drug. It's good. It's good when you get when you when you're high, but be careful on your way down. And it kind of got me thinking about a lot of these 
things and, and these catchphrases that people say and, and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, um, I guess, influencers and, and self-help gurus, gurus that teach certain things. But I, I wonder, from your perspective, after all the years and the amazing people that you've spoke to, and there's billionaires and, and actors and, and, and sports people within that, have you, well, how do you find, define success? And have you found over that period it's changed at all? Yeah. Um, how do you define success? That is a really deep question. Um, I think there's a generic answer and I think there's an individual answer. So generically, I think success is being the most useful version of yourself that you can be to society because you can't judge um, a fish on its ability to play chess. And I think a lot of people in personal development, they're judging other success on their own. You know, when a lot of these big business people call other people losers. Well, no, maybe that person's really kind and isn't a loser at all. They're just not an entrepreneur. So success generally, I would say is, how useful are you to as many people as possible relevant to your own individual uniqueness? But to find your own individual uniqueness, you've got to spend some time asking yourself, who am I and what do I want to do with my life? Because if there's some skills or talents in you that you never allow out because you're too shy or because you, you don't try them because you stay comfortable, um, then you will never know how good you could be, but you won't be as useful to many people. Because like, if you look at a podcast, is it successful if the content is amazing and there has no listeners? Or the content's average and it makes people chuckle, but it has a billion listeners? Well, you'd probably argue it's somewhere in the middle, I would say. It's got to be good, valuable, but it's got to impact people as well. So I would say that's the generic version. And what a lot of society and personal development does is judge your success based on my values. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you don't judge me on how I look because you know health and fitness isn't as important to me as it is to you because you've lived your whole life doing it and you've been doing weights and bouncing the doors and <laughs> teaching it for 30 plus years. Whereas, as you know, with me, I have my cycles of fitness challenges and getting comfortable. So the, that's the generic definition of success in my view. Specifically, for um, you as an individual, it is, are you doing best at being you? I think that's success. But being you is one of the hardest things in the world because you've got your wife and your business partner in your ear and you've got society in your ear and you've got everyone else judging and projecting onto you and you start to question who you really are. And there's a lot of noise and media and social media which gets in the way. So this is when we go for dinner next week, we should talk about this, but I've stopped reading books. And I've stopped listening to podcasts. And that's something you and I have always had a thing in common. I always gobble up loads. But one of the reasons is, is because sometimes if I consume too much content, it starts to lose who I am because I'm listening to mm. who much of all the authors and everything is. So I will obviously get back into books and podcasts. I love them. But I'm having a little sabbatical where for six or 12 months, I've got a couple of big projects on. I'm just going to not put anything in other than my own voice. That's interesting. Because there's so many voices out there. <clears throat> So 
when you listen to your own voice and you, you get rid of all judgment and ridicule and fear, who are you and what are you supposed to do with your life? And then you get on that mission of whatever it is. And for me, it's helping as many people on the planet get better financial education and knowledge of all the things I love to do. Ultimately, I like to teach people about making money and have a good relationship with money. And um, I, I want to be a voice for um, society changing the way we view money and not seeing it as bad. And I'm clear about that. And, and I'm on that mission. And, how, and just just to sort of not to lose your track, how did you figure that out? Because that's a problem for a lot of people as well. You know, like you, you seem to have just found your, you, you're obviously an educator. You obviously like making money and you seem to have been able to, you know, it's not just about making money for you because you put so much time into creating content and your brand, you know, almost like obsessively, which most people would just not bother to do. So you must have a passion. How do you get those two things right? Or was it just by accident? Um, there's definitely a lot of trial and error because um, I seeing myself a curse that I have is that I like a lot of things. So at school, I was good at most sports and I was good at most subjects. And that makes you relatively popular at school. But as we start to niche into society where we go from eight subjects to three at A-level and then to one at university, that actually really hurt me because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I just didn't know. And I used to envy people who wanted to be a firefighter or a chess player, and they knew from a young age, because I just liked too many things or I liked new things. So I just couldn't find what it or they, because that's an important distinction. Not everyone has got a one it. They might have a they. Because if you think about it now, we're going to live to what? Hopefully 80, 90 years old. Let, let's assume average 86, let's say. Well, and of course, you're going to live till you're 150. Um, but, you know, let's the average, what is it, 86 or something like that, the average life expectancy. So let's say we're going to live till 86. Um, you know, you could have three or four careers in you from 1821 to 86. So I think a lot of people are like, what is my one thing I don't know? And you never find the one thing because you're looking for the one thing. And that's a paradox. So um, I kept looking for the one thing, I couldn't find it. And then I started thinking, well, I've got to try some stuff. Let's just try. Um, so I got into property when I was nearly 26 and really enjoyed it and bought a lot of property um, and got some good passion out of it. But probably three or four years into property, I'm like, I don't really like tenants, nothing against anyone who rents, <laughs> but I just, you know, I don't like dealing with tenants on a daily basis, going and collecting rents and dealing with their problems. I don't like dealing with inventories and managing agents and insurers and all that. You know, well, not for me, it's for someone else. So I started to realise that actually the wider entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur, this seems like, yeah, because it's property is part of entrepreneurship, but um, I can have more breadth. So um, then I started exploring, well, actually, if I'm a property owner, and I've got a portfolio of properties, does that make me a businessman as well? And one day I woke up and think, yeah, I am actually an entrepreneur as well, not just a property investor. So my identity widened and I really started enjoying entrepreneurship and starting more companies and taking what I'd learned and duplicating and triplicating it. And then so kind of content and social media and YouTube and podcasts and all that, that so like, yeah, I really like that. I love doing that. So it evolved. Property, entrepreneurship, content is the evolution of me over the last 
sort of 16 years. The good thing about them is they're all similar. Like if I had a doc, if I wanted to be a doctor and then seven years later, I wanted to be a gym instructor and then seven years later, I want to be a, what do they, someone who makes champagne or whatever. I, I can't carry those skills over. But property into entrepreneurship into sort of content and social media, you carry the skills over. So I would say it was an element of being lost for 25 years and, and then trying things and then evolving. Um, but you have to get to the point where you try something and even, even if you're not sure. I wrote a book called Start Now, Get Perfect Later because so many people are looking to be perfect and having all their ducks in a row before they start and you never start. So that's your, just get, just pick something and, and get on with it then. Well, yes. About halfway through that journey, I started studying John Demartini. Um, and he talked about passion into profession. Turn your passion into your profession. He talked about we all have a unique set of values. Um, and if you have a, um, a look inside and ask yourself what's most important to you, and you list those values out, and then you create a meaningful vision around linked to those values, you can unearth out of yourself the things that are um, high on your priorities. And so trial and error, evolution and study probably um, got me to the point where I, I'm really clear now. Mm. I can't imagine, I, I can imagine I'll be doing a lot of things within financial education, but I can't imagine moving outside of financial education. I mean, financial education is one of the mm. biggest industries in the world. So it's not something I'm ever going to conquer and think, oh, I've done that. But did in, in, in relation to that sort of... Um because I was I was looking into your book about the uh, which one I've written the the um, not what is it about you know don't wait for it to be perfect start you have, now start start now get yeah get perfect later get yeah. perfect later and and it it kind of I know we're dotting around a little bit here and I'm going to get back to my well, original they don't question. know that <laughs> they don't know that because they haven't got your question <laughs> but the the um, the you know. That in relation to the book, do you think sometimes it's like, look, you, you're not going to know, but you're either going to be sitting on your backside doing nothing or, or at least move in a direction. And if nothing else, you're going to be in a, a, a more forward position than you were, even if you've learned that that's not for you. Yeah, well, to know what you want to do is also to know what you don't want to do. So if you haven't tried things and cancel off what you don't want to do, how do you know what you want to do? So sometimes, some people are quite lucky. Rory McIlroy from two years old was playing golf and probably knew he wanted to be a golfer. But others of us, like me, you have to cross things off the list first. So um, if someone is listening or watching and they are a procrastinator or they've wanted to do something for 10 or 15 years and they haven't had the courage, or they're not quite sure or they're sat on the fence, sitting on the fence hurts your ass. Get off the fence. You might go the wrong way. Like, if you take a few wrong turns, but you're always moving north, you'll get there in the end. So, yeah, definitely, I've got many flaws, Matt, but one thing I'm... I think we all have. Yeah, <laughs> and I've got m many of the public. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things I'm pretty good at is trying stuff. You know, what you did with your podcast was actually a little bit of stroke of genius. I also did it with my TikTok. Um, I also did it with my Rob.team membership site. If you're going to try something new... Just commit to doing it for a significant amount of time consistently. Instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to have a million listeners or I'm going to be a podcaster. You just said, I'm going to do podcasting for a year. With my TikTok channel, I just said, I'm just going to do a TikTok video a day. That's all I said. I didn't know. I, I, like, I was quite um, 
nervous about doing content at much shorter um, amount of time and in a much younger demographic. But all my commitment was I'm going to do a TikTok video every day and I can handle that. And it, many of them are probably going to be shit. I was talking to John Demartini a while back about goals and he says, he said, goals are a fantasy. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you think about a goal, what you do in a goal is you talk about your results, but without any of the challenges, but life has challenges to get to the results. So a goal is essentially the upside desirable fantasy of what you want. When I set goals, I think about all of the problems that will occur on my journey to the outcome. So if I've got a goal to be a millionaire, I'll also go, what security do I need? What people might I lose in my life? You know, who might hate me? How many haters might I have? And he thinks about the downside planning as well as um, the upside planning. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so some things to think about. Should we... Um, yeah, we let's do that. yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Five, so- five years. <laughs> So as you're doing that, my original success question then was so you, was the what what would you what would you say is one of the biggest changes? Like you mentioned that what success means, and you gave a couple of great examples. But how, when before you started po- podcasting seven years ago, have you felt that many of the guests and the belief systems that other people have have, have shaped? your view and if so what what would be one of the things that's probably different from before if anything so what do i believe about success that may have changed like, like i said i just just you know simple Cheers. thing listening to thank you i'm giving to you a bit some less of the... than half because obviously <laughs> you're not supposed to drink sorry wendy I'll, I will build. I will build upon that question. I, I listened to your Andrew Tate interview. He's, he's an interesting character, and um, and cheers, Rob. Cheers. Five years. I'm going to neck this, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> oh, very nice. Mm. Um, okay, so, fi- so, so, fi- so he was talking like you're obviously the property, the property geezer, and and you had a, an interesting conversation about property. He didn't. He didn't believe necessarily in property he did and he didn't but but you know if you listen to the interview it could be he's got a different belief system about property than than maybe you have for example and so have you been able to sort of as you've gone through these through a lot of the interviews have you stayed fairly rigid in your your own self-confidence and your beliefs or have you evolved in it goes through to what you were saying about almost you going through this cleanse of not reading any books so you want to you want to get your own feelings have you have you been shaped and if so how have you been shaped as it relates to your own personal success yeah i think there's an evolution definitely and because you know if you think about men in the 1980s it was, it was all like put you on your double-breasted suit and sell wolf of wall street And if you think about men, maybe five years ago, there's a bit more femininity and vulnerability about being a man. And now people like Andrew Tate and not just Andrew Tate, people like Jordan Peterson as well are bringing in this sort of new world. Um, Actually, you know, embrace your masculinity because your masculinity is required to fight the wars and put out the fires. And so that's almost like a full cycle of what it is to be a man. Mm. And um, I've definitely, I'll tell you one thing I've changed. I really used to think that um, being very vulnerable about your struggles and challenges, I really used to think that that was a good thing because that's what society taught us. (laughs) And in some areas of my life, that's actually really given me good bonded relationships. But in business, you also have to be tough. 
And actually, you could have a lot of vulnerabilities and you can't show that to your competitors. You can't show that to your staff. And at times I've been vulnerable because it's the new trend. <laughs> but actually, it didn't really help me at all. And I should have shown some solidarity and strength. Um, so that's a, a cycle that you see. So I can imagine successes, too, because in the 1980s, it was probably all about being rich and powerful. And now, apparently, it's all about freedom and choice and travel and minimalism. I mean, I, I'm not a minimalist person. I never will be a minis, minimalist person. I just think that's like, why would I want less? I want more. <laughs> um, and and yeah, being satisfied with, what, with where you're at and what you've got. Well, why would I want to do that? Evolution doesn't want you to be satisfied. Evolution wants you to grow. So Is there a difference between growth and set and and um, and uh, like satisfaction and you know with, are those are those two things the same or different for you? Then that's an interesting point. To raise it's a it. paradox. Okay. This see social media content um, is about extremes, you know, extreme left, extreme right, extreme opinions. So the the accurate content of paradox never really proliferates social media. But um, let's take the example of fitness. My guess is the best workouts you've ever done have been the hardest. And in the moment, you probably wanted to die and quit. But afterwards, you got a major buzz. Um, you know, a lot of people are on the cold therapy at the moment. I do cold therapy and I don't fucking like it. But afterwards, I get a good buzz. My guess is also... Some of your workouts are the ones that are the best where you really couldn't be fucked. And you just, your brain was just screaming at you. You didn't want to train and you did anyway. And afterwards, you felt like a man. So if you can, if anyone can relate to those things, we get the most satisfaction in during the greatest challenge. I, I agree with that. Yeah, you know, like yeah. climbing, you know, if you climb a molehill, there's not much satisfaction. If you climb Mount Everest, there's a lot of satisfaction. Yeah. So society now are looking for satisfaction without the struggle. And I think that's fucking wrong. And I think that's creating a lot of very weak people, a, very, a lot of entitled people. And social media has a lot to do with it. So the paradox of satisfaction, which is a, your initial question is, sometimes my, the only way I get satisfaction is by doing hard shit and growing. So like, we're not drinking champagne because you've done your first episode. We're drinking champagne because you've done your fifth year of podcasting. And you'd have had some, like, I interviewed Dorian Yates and fucking hell, I was awful. I was just so scared of the man and just so overwhelmed. And it was, he was too big a guest too early. And if I look back at that, like, how shit was I as an interviewer? But if you watch my Andrew Tate interview. It was a good interview. Well, I, like, I, I don't normally blow my own trumpet, but I interviewed him really well. I interviewed him way better than Piers Morgan did. And, um, and so I, you know, I've endured all sorts of shit and cancellations and traveling to different countries and guests pulling out. And we went to fucking half of the other side of the world and our equipment didn't work. And <laughs> we got our equipment seized at quarantine and we've had shadow bans and, you know, our account shut down one interview, David, I can all sorts. But to sit here and go, yeah, I've done over a thousand episodes, seven years. Satisfaction. But I couldn't have that satisfaction unless I'd gone through the, Seven years of shit. So I think the paradox is all these people who want the minimalist, easy life, what they'll end up finding is, is they've got a boring, unfulfilling life with less things in it. That's what they'll end up realising. 
They don't at the moment because people are making it popular. But do you, you use the word things there? Like, do you... Or, do you are, are, or are experiences you, or whatever. Yeah, like, are you... Do you own things or do things own you? Um, things used to own me. And then lockdown, I taught myself to own my things. So I've got a lot of supercars. Um, and to be honest, I wasn't using most of them, but I didn't want to sell them because I liked having them. And really all they were was objects in my garage that no one else saw. Um, but I had some attachment to them. It cost a fuck of a lot to run. And they're in, in a lot of ways, they can be a drain. And in lockdown, we actually did all right through lockdown. And it was, a sh it was hard, but it was a great experience looking back. But in lockdown, I said, I'll sell all my cars tomorrow if I have to. It's all gone. As long as I've got my wife and my kids, a house, even if it's not my one, even if I have to downgrade. Like, there's this power in facing your demons and being okay with the consequences of that. So, for example, many of us don't make decisions because we're scared of the outcome. Whereas if we look at that outcome and really go into that outcome and we let go of the fear that power it has over us leaves. Like if you've had a bad relationship over the years and you actually go in your head to, what if I wasn't with this person, you know, could I cope? Would I be okay? What would happen? And if you, if you let go of the fear of being alone, you'll be better in your relationship. So yeah, I just, um, I had a load of fucking watches, a load of cars, a load of, a lot of things, a load of clothes. I am a hoarder. I just like, I like a lot of stuff. And I just let go of it all in my head. So um, I could have one car or 12 cars. I could have one watch or 50 watches. As it happens, I've still got a lot of them, but I get a lot more enjoyment out of them now. Um, so no, my stuff doesn't own me anymore, but it probably did. You're, you're, I guess for people who don't know you, your persona is about nice cars and watches and, and it's a, it's a very, I suppose it's, it's, you would, you would see it's quite a materialistic persona. Uh, have you ever thought in terms of carrying that idea, how, how would you or do you think you'd easily be able to deal with having to give that up either voluntarily or involuntarily and do you think that that would um knock you off to do that now you've obviously been through it you've demonstrated you can make some money but you've still got money and um and a lot of and I'm, the reason I'm asking this question is a lot of people who have gone off even this John the Gypsy guy um, who we spoke to you know he talked about going bankrupt and how painful and difficult that was but have you imagined like could you give it all away and still continue to be robbed more and that not affect you well until it happens I couldn't honestly say could I it's all very well me saying hey, yeah, I'll be fine and you know <laughs> you can take my money but my knowledge you know that's what everyone says and I like to think I'd be able to handle it like that but until you've actually been through something, I, I think it's um, a bit presumptuous to answer. What I can say is that um, I've been able to detach me and this version of me that you mentioned, i.e., yes, I love being an entrepreneur. Yes, I love the accolades that come with it. Um, 
but I've learned to love and appreciate me without all those things as well. Because what happens when you're an entrepreneur often, mostly, in fact, I don't know an entrepreneur who doesn't have this, but we identify as an entrepreneur, i.e. look at, we might not brag about it, but you know, I've achieved this and that, and I've done this and that, and I started with nothing, and now <laughs> I've built this. And imagine taking that all away. That's almost like, me. Who are you? Yeah, you are just left with the vulnerable, childlike version of you who can't use your brand and notoriety and materials to get love and attention. It's just on you. And I've definitely gone through that process where I identify so much as an entrepreneur. Without that, I'd be naked and I'd feel very fucking vulnerable. In fact, my therapist helped me a lot with that. She helped me detach Rob the Entrepreneur from Rob the Human Being. In terms of Rob the Human Being, I quite like myself. I've got, you know, I made some mistakes, um, but overall I'm pretty kind, I'm pretty generous. Um, I do a lot for a lot of people. And, I do, and that, interestingly, I mean, I'm not a bragger, but you know, I'm a marketer, <laughs> but all the things I market about are not actually all the really cool, nice, Kind. No, you don't. You ch- a lot of the stuff you've done for charity that I, that I don't think you make a big thing, and I, don't even, I know. Don't even say it. Yeah, and I, I get why you don't. But you're, you're, yeah, you're what what people think you probably are that don't know you from the surface. You are actually a deep down nice guy, really. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. And um, so learning to separate that has been a useful exercise. But also, you still got to identify as an entrepreneur because you've got to go out there and make your living. Mm. Um, so if that was all taken away, I'd just start again. I, I, like, I don't know anything else. I know this for a fact. If it was all taken away, I would just start again. Um, the good thing about, I mean, I've got 2 million followers across my socials, so I have a lot of haters. And the great gift of haters is I couldn't give a fuck what they say. And I might have said that five years ago with some bravado. I don't care what they say, but actually I might have done. But now I really don't fucking care what they say. I mean, if Arnold Schwarzenegger went and did an, an outing video about me, I, he's a bit of a hero of mine, it probably would hurt. But like the thousands of twattish comments I get, I really don't care. So five years ago, if I'd have gone bust and lost everything, it would have hurt so much because of what everyone would have said. Now, I, could, I know I could block that out. I, I know I could. Um, I'm also very careful like I'm not, I don't give that persona, but Mark and I keep a lot of spare cash. We have a lot of assets. And even in lockdown, we had enough money to burn for years. And cause I would hate to go bust. Not just for the reputation, but you know, let's say I've got 10,000 customers and we've got all these creditors and suppliers. I would hate the thought that I'd let all them down. Um, and I know if things got hard, I would try my best to pay my creditors back. Whereas a lot of people just wind a company up every couple of years, fuck off all the creditors mm. and start again. I couldn't do that. And, and, and the bigger bigger the companies that you don't actually think are doing it seem to do it all the time. Yeah. It doesn't get... It happens so much in the property <laughs> space as well with all the, really? the, the... Yeah, all the builders. They just wind the company up and start again. And, um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. And actually, I like the fact that I couldn't do that. It makes me feel like I, there's a good person in there. <laughs> so, yeah, I think... Um, I think I could handle not having any material items and not having a successful persona, but I'd want to get back there pretty quick. Do you also think as you've got 
older and wiser that that um, the material stuff becomes less important as you become wiser about right. things because you you know you've as I said you, you know billionaires now and, and obviously so there's a certain amount of money where it's like, okay how many cars can you buy and drive and houses can you live in and all that sort of stuff like have, have you have you evolved from what you thought the purpose of money was and I want to come on to that next and and, and I suppose how you see it now no you haven't well, that surprises me. It, it depends. Well, it depends on what you define as evolution. Um, but I fucking love money. I did when I was 25 and I do when I'm 43. What's wrong with that? And most people probably haven't got the courage to say that. But I reckon even if you took the most extreme socialist, communist, extreme woke lefty, They'd want a nice car, not a shit car, a nice house, not a shit house, nice travel, not, you know, cheap travel. Okay. But is that, okay, that, that's interesting you say that. So are we defining money in, do we, do we, do we all have different ways of defining money? Because I suppose some of those things you could argue that you could create a lifestyle where, okay, I can travel first class, arguably, like you could have, you could have no... You don't have to necessarily be rich, but you could travel first class. You could live in a beautiful place. You could um, eat beautiful food. You could have a healthy lifestyle. And you and and in what most people think is money, you may not actually have that stuff available. So, does it is it about money, or is it actually about what money can provide you? And are there more than one ways of getting that without having money? Okay, so we've got two open questions here. <laughs> um, I just want to, there's nothing wrong with being materialistic and everyone thinks there is. So um, I absolutely adore Alexander McQueen. Like if you have not watched the documentary about Alexander McQueen, you need to watch that because that moved me seriously. And he was an artist a proper artist and his jackets are three to five grand minimum and I have a lot of them so oh, who could spend three to five grand on a jacket I'm not just buying a jacket I'm buying an identity I'm buying a, someone else's passion and art and their whole life's work so here's the thing you, you might buy a Rembrandt because you, you know it's art but isn't a Ferrari art mm -hmm. and isn't a Patek Philippe or a Panerai art? How's it any different? So one, John Demartini really helped me with this because deep down, I love money. <laughs> and most people won't say it, but I will. And then, but what does that mean? Deep down, I love the luxury and the materials that money buys me. Um, but society will tell you it's wrong. Even your question was sort of leading towards, well, Rob's evolved to not be as materialistic. No, I haven't. I'm still materialistic. My materials are just different. I'm probably more focused now on less but higher quality. That's probably how I've evolved. Instead of trying to buy everything that's expensive, 
I love McQueen, I'm only going to buy McQueen. I love Louboutin, I'm only going to buy Louboutin. I love Patek, I'm only going to buy Patek. I love Lamborghini, I'm only going to buy Lamborghini. That's probably how it's evolved. But like, when you buy Lamborghini, you buy the rebel who took on Ferrari. That's what you're buying in Lamborghini. You're not just buying a car. And when you buy Patek Philippe, you're buying the legacy that this watch is going to go through your family for generations. You're not just buying a watch. And there is art and boutique and passion. Because I bet you, you don't think your gym products are just standard gym products. Oh, obviously, they're not, Rob. No. So, <laughs> so you would, you're putting, how old are you now? 52. 52. And you've been in fitness since you're what? 16, 18? 16, yeah. So you're actually putting 35 plus years of passion and knowledge and experience into escape. Mm-hmm. So if someone said, well, it's just fucking expensive gym equipment, you'd be like, wait a minute. No, it's not. It's passion and knowledge and all the details and the life force energy. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see materialism. But I don't buy cheap because it's not. Because cheap food is the opposite of that. Cheap food is commodity and preservatives and consumerism. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't buy cheap because cheap is shit. I like cheap. I mean, my wife's always banging on to me about cheap food and preservatives and all the shit that's in it. So that's how I see materialism. And I want to be a voice that makes people understand that when you buy Patek Philippe, you buy a watchmaker who's done this for 10 years making this fucking watch. You know, there's a lot of value in that. So I am materialistic and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I've evolved to be more selective about my materialism so I'm less wasteful. And not just buying things because of consumerism and brands selling me. So I, I pick my brands. But is that, I, I guess, where, where I suppose, and you've answered it in a couple of different ways. But I, I think, so let's, let's say somebody doesn't probably have the, the financial means <clears throat> as what you do. You know, somebody who's probably earning 50 grand a year as an example. That principle could still apply. Like I, uh, you know, it's like if you're going to buy some clothes, and I have a lot of sort of older people who talk about this. It's, it's like right, always invest in the best pair of shoes that you can buy, and and you know whether it's a jacket or a suit. There's certain things that you can probably skimp on, but there's certain things like you just buy the best shoes you can, even if you know even if you don't have a lot of money. And 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 probably a similar thing could go about. You could you could explain about our fitness equipment, for example, for different reasons and food, you know, you never want to skimp on food. But I suppose it's like, do we, do we also, in some cases, can people get too, uh, I suppose, um, confused with what they're really chasing unnecessarily, which, which can affect them? Because if, if we look at money, you've written a book about money, great book. Um, people clearly have an emotional issue about it. Even in the Bible, you know, there's a statement I've written down here, you know, money, even in the Bible, it doesn't say that money is evil. They say that the love of money is evil. So clearly we couldn't do this podcast if it wasn't for money. Even if I was doing a charity podcast, you couldn't run a charity without money. There's so many wonderful and amazing things that you cannot do without this currency that allows you to to create things. But I suppose, is it... You know, is, is, is your relationship with money um, about some of the thing, you know, some of the, 
the sort of things that you trinkets you buy in terms of is that is that how you look at it in terms of okay well I, I like these things or do you view money as something different to probably what a lot of people do my, my guess is that you do view it as a, because of the way you run your business and how you invest and everything what, what what's your what's your thoughts on those two things does that does that kind of make sense yeah yeah it does money is a universal exchange of value it's a unit of account it's a measure of worth it has economic definitions but what ultimately money is is an effective tool that we've universally agreed we exchange for products and services. So why are all these people out there thinking that money is bad and greed and powerful and evil and materialism is bad and you should be minimalism and live your one life having fuck all? What sort of nonsense is that? That money is not evil. The love of money is not evil. The Bible was wrong. What is evil (laughs) is people. Because if, let's say, you took a hammer and one of your staff members had pissed you off and you smashed them in the head till they died, that hammer would not get tried for the murder. You would. The hammer was the tool. You used the hammer. Money's the same. But no one looks at the hammer and goes, well, you murdering bastard. They know that you used the tool, the weapon. You turned a hammer into a weapon. A hammer's a really good tool. It's better than your hand at banging in a nail, and it's better than your fingernails at pulling out a nail. That's all it is. We don't judge a hammer. We don't call a hammer greedy. We don't call a hammer a weapon, but it can be a weapon. Money's the same. Money doesn't have emotion. Money doesn't have feeling. Money doesn't have anything. It's a tool. But why do you think that money does have such an emotion? Like if you think because about... people blame money for human things. <clears throat> but, they, but you could say that about guns and all kinds of things. But money seems to be one of those things that, that universally is a problem for a lot of people. It's, there's, not, there's not a shortage of money in the world, if it was, mm. which it is if it was relatively balanced. But there isn't, as from what I believe in my sort of you know, simple mind. But I don't think there's necessarily a shortage of money. Um, but... but uh, and yet it's one of those things that seems to imprison so many people and it creates so many issues. And, and yet, you know, and you're, you know, you write books about it, you teach people how to make money, uh, but it's, it's, it's such a charged word. And, and it's one of those things that people can't seem, in, in a lot of cases, it, it, it's, they can't seem to sort of break out of it and say, yeah, I, I, can, I can get it. It's, it's easy to obtain. I can, I can get enough money that I need. It, it always seems to be some sort of like, um, uh, what, what's the word? There, there's this invisible ceiling where they're never going to be able to break through. What, why? why uh, you must have kind of given that some thought. Why, why do you think that's happening? And why aren't more people satisfied with, they don't all have to be with you. They don't have to like drive Lamborghinis and Ferraris. Not everybody likes those, but everybody should have the ability financially, my guess is, is you believe this, to be able to kind of live the life that they sort of want, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, I think it's societal and parental um, indoctrination. I think that's one thing. I think it's also a lack of personal responsibility. Um, And I think it's also because of how common money is. Like, 
if you're into chess, of the 8 billion that we've just hit now, the 8 billion people on the planet, you're going to have to talk to a lot of people who aren't into chess before you find someone who's into chess. But money is top of everyone's mind. It is. I mean, like, look at the moment. Yeah. You've got soaring cost of living, you've got the heating, you've got the energy, you've got the taxation, you've got the inflation, you've got the interest rates. It's all linked to money. So reason number one why money is so emotive is because every single person on the planet has a vested personal interest in money, whereas they don't. They should have in health. In they should time. have, but they don't. But that's your values projected, well, well, remember, not, because your well, health is high on your values. Let's, let's challenge that question. Like, um, what good is money without health? Well, why do you have to ch choose between the two? No, but I'm, I'm just saying, like money, you, you're, you're saying money is like everywhere, but, but, you know, surely money and health should probably be everywhere, whereas health isn't, you know. Yeah, I mean, you asked me about money. Yeah. If you'd have asked me about health, I might have given you a different answer. So, um, I mean, I don't think you have to choose between money and health. Here's the thing that most people don't understand. Do you know what? Do you know the best way you can live the longest? Be rich. <laughs> it's a fact. Do you know I spent two and a half thousand pounds on supplements last month? Well, you know, because you know what they cost. All these new bloody reverse aging shit we're all taking as well. NMD and NAD and NMN and all these supplements my wife's got me on. I spent two and a half thousand. By the way, no steroids, no fucking, as you can see. But two and a half thousand pounds last month I spent on food related supplements. If you track back through history, it's the rich people that live the longest, not the poor. They can afford the vaccinations early. Mm -hmm. They can afford, you know, the proper health care. So actually, if you want to live long, get rich. Fact. So about the money thing, and I was, I was only using that as a comparison to say, well, look, you know, surely money is everywhere, as you say. And because and, and, remember, the, the money question, is a tool. Yeah. The question was, why do we all have such a, an issue with money? And, and you mentioned it was everywhere. I guess I was saying health is, is equally as important, important, but it's not everywhere. Why, why do you still feel, though, like if, if you want to get I, I guess it's in a similar way, like if pe most people or there's a big percentage of people that are unfit and unhealthy. And really all they need to do is they need to kind of, you know, move a little bit more cut out a lot of the crap and, and they can, in most cases, they can make a significant improvement if they've not done anything in their life. Money is one of these things that seems to be, it, it seems to continue through different generations. People seem to almost like believe um, that they can't do anything about it. And you asked, you asked a question on one of your podcasts, can anyone make money? Uh, and the guy answered the question, yes. Like, do you feel anyone can make anyone can make money, meaning enough money to, to do what they dream of doing? I think anyone can do anything if it's important enough to them. So all these people in the world that aren't focusing on their health is because it's not important enough to them. But I bet you if their husband or wife died of cancer at 35, their health will also all of a sudden become more important to them. So People who aren't rich have not made getting rich important enough to them. People who are not fit and healthy have not made being fit and healthy important enough to them. That I believe to be a universal fact because you just said, oh, it's easy. You just move more and blah, blah, blah. 
Well, most people, it's not easy at all. They're riddled with addictions and self-loathing and blah, blah, blah. But the point is, if all of a sudden it became important, because I used to be fat, I was the fattest kid in my school for three years, and the bullying got so bad and the self-loathing got so hard, in the end I lost all the weight because all of a sudden it became important enough to me because I was in so much pain. Now, um, if you got so broke you couldn't even afford to live, now all of a sudden money's going to become important to you. Actually, the process of making money, the system of making money, it's not hard. Wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage. It's not hard. What's hard is making it important enough to you. But if your mum and dad have banged into you your whole life that it's evil to be rich and you live in a socialist or a communist country that's banging in all that in, you're indoctrinated for it not to be important enough to you. Because actually, society as a whole needs you to be broke, not rich. Yeah, that was an interesting point you made, yeah. Do, do you think, like obviously health, health is important, it's relatively easy to fix it. I'm, I'm into health, you're into money. Um, but when it comes to money, do you feel that there's, certain external pressures. Like I don't watch TV. I came to England. I was with my parents last night, stopped at their house, watched the TV. I'm like, fucking hell. Like it yeah. was just, I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I, I was just so depressed after I watched it. So the, the, the media seemed to just bombard you with like, this is really, really bad. Um, so either it is really bad or it just, it's just being channeled that it's really, really bad. And it's almost like it's hopeless. There's nothing you can do about it. Do you think that, that the sort of media and, and other things, it, it, it makes sense for people to probably not have the ability to generate the money they want and to be able to make the decisions in life that they want? Is, is, there, is, that, is, is there other interests that make sense to keep people poor and stupid? <laughs> yeah, so... I think you've got to find out what other people's selfish interests are and then make your decision on that. So with the media, um, bad news sells better than good news. So they're going to be a purveyor of bad news. When was the last time you saw the homepage of any media outlet with all good news? And even when times are prosperous, you ain't going to see that. So when you understand that the media's motive is profit, because they're a commercial enterprise, and bad news sells better than good news, you know it's not balanced. Look at Big Pharma. Big Pharma's commercial incentive is not for you to get better. It's for you to stay ill. Because the longer you are ill, the more you can be monetized or commercialized. So maybe there are some Big Pharma companies out there that are making a difference, but the point is, the self-interest and the motivations are not in line with humanity's greater interests. So humanity's greater interest is probably to know the good news and the bad news equally. That would serve us well. And humanity's greater interest is probably to fix, work out what's making us ill and fix it. And fix the cause, not the symptom. But Big Pharma wants to keep you buying to remove the symptom not the cause, because if it gets rid of the cause, it can't keep you buying the medication that just sorts the symptom. So I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to look at what is the motive behind what is the ulterior and the selfish motive. The banks, the banks make money out of you saving money. 
Saving. Yeah. But saving money is losing money. Mm. So, because basically when you save, you lend the bank money. And what the banks do is they lend that money or invest that money out. So the banks don't make any money if you don't have any money in the banks. A lot of people don't. A lot of people do. Okay. Most people do. Yeah, okay, some smart people are putting it into watches and putting it into property and putting it into other assets. And maybe people are becoming a bit more aware now. But the masses, they have their checking or their current account okay. and they have their savings account. Oh, and then what do they invest in? Government bonds, pensions, state pensions. So basically, the more money you have in a savings account and the more money you have in a state pension, the more the central banks and the governments are able to benefit from that. But a savings account will pay you 3%, but interest rates are 6 And inflation is 14 So you are net down probably 10% a year leaving your money in the banks. But the banks don't want you to know that. Because... If the banks told the truth, which is even when interest rates are high, we don't give you all the interest. Therefore, we make money on your money. And by the way, when inflation is more than interest, you lose money. If they taught you that, you wouldn't put any of your money in savings. So what the banks need is uneducated people about money, leaving their monies in savings, thinking it's an investment, thinking that they're earning a return, thinking that it's safe. I can tell you for a fact, my, my money is safer in my gold watches than it is in the bank. Because you know when there's a run on the banks or there's a financial revolution and both are coming, the banks will just fucking nick all my money. But no one knows where my watches are. So this is, for me, much safer money. And when, when the pound is worth fuck all, which it is now, but when it's worth even more fuck all, my money's worthless, but my gold... And my real estate is worth more. So this is another thing. What is the motive of the banks? So basically, here's how the system makes money off you. They convince you you need savings and money in the bank. They pay you fuck all on it. They don't guarantee it. And then they invest it and make money on it. That's way number one. Way number two is they want to lend you loads of money. So they want you to have a mortgage and they want you to get loans so that for the next 45 years, do you know the average American pays £600,000 in interest? And some people will pay millions in interest because interest is the bank's profit. That's the next way. And then the third way is tax. So if you have got a mortgage and you're paying loads of money to the bank and you've got your little bit of money in savings and they're earning on it and you're paying 45% tax on what you earn, They've completely got you. You are fucked. You are in that system and you are working 70% of your time for the government and the central banks. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur, you earn your money first and you pay tax last, not first. (laughs) If you're an investor, you go, I'm going to invest in real estate and watches and gold and crypto and whatever else. And I'm going to have it away from the system. So, you know, people say, oh, why do the rich get richer and the poor get poor? It's This is why the rich get richer because they know how to get rich and they know how to pull money out of the system. The poor get poorer because they're uneducated and they're stuck in the system. So people say to me, well, Rob, all this stuff's really useful. It should be taught in schools. It's never going to be taught in schools. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say. Like, if you think of your, our kids or anyone's kids, it's like, well, what, what would be the best thing you could give? Say, for example, you're, they're quite young and you're not going to be around 
you know, as they grow older to advise them, what would be the best thing that they could do? Well, one of the, as you say, coming back to money, one of the most important things is, okay, maybe they don't have to drive the Lamborghini, but what they want to be able to do is to have a great life, great food, just just be able to do the things that they want to do, good education, whatever that means to people. Um, it, it, you have to. I have to ask myself a question. Well, why isn't there some basic financial literacy, financial investing, um, you know, business that they teach um, younger kids? You know, why don't they teach them some of those basics? Because it, it would seem that it would get rid of a lot of the problems that most people have, even about if they want to go on for education, they could probably figure out a way of making money to fund it, as opposed to having to take huge loans from the government to be able to pay yeah, for it. Yeah, but then the education. huge loans for the government benefit the government. Well, yeah. So, but, but it, Why are they going to teach people to be independent when they need them to be dependent? So do you, do you in the, so are we saying then that the reason that there's such a, a sort of an emotion around money is not only of people not being taught money through school like they were taught English and mathematics and science and geography, etc. But secondly, there's a system that sort of disincentivizes and, and, and disencourages people to do that because the businesses that know how to make money are actually thinking, well, let's not teach them how that works because it's going to make our lives much more difficult. Is would you would that summarise like your view of how you see it, or am I being too sort of like you know, too sort of uh, what's the word, um, pessimistic about the whole thing? Look, I don't know the person, the people, or the groups that are in this globalist regime or that are running the world. So I can't say for sure why things don't change as you've asked, but just go back to what's the motive. Like if you were taught how to be independent financially, and by the way, one of the ways to be independent financially is to get your tax bill down. Why would the government want you to learn that? <laughs> one of the ways to be independent financially is to invest in your own assets watches, real estate, gold, crypto, stuff that's decentralised. Why would the banking system and the government want you to learn that? You know, the government's got a massive pinch state pension deficit and part of it's the life expectancy, but I understand that those pension pots have been dipped into and money's been taken out. So if you're smart, you create your own pension. But why would the government want you to create your own pension? They don't want you to create your own pension. Why would the government want you to have money out of the system. They don't they want you to have money in the system. So I can't say that there's one Dr. Evil sat at the top. <laughs> I can't say there's nefarious intention. I can just say the way the system is set up, it doesn't benefit them in any way for you to learn how to be independent, financially independent. The, the pharma industry doesn't benefit them in any way for you to not need any medication. I don't take medication. I, if I've got ever I've got a headache, I don't take headache pills. I refuse. I have in the past when I was younger, and I'm not saying if I was fucking violently ill, I might not want the bit of morphine, <laughs> but I try and make a general rule to not take any medication and look at what can I do myself. That doesn't benefit the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm not saying there's a Dr. Evil sat at the top. I'm just saying it doesn't benefit them. So why would they do it? So why would the, why would the financial education system in schools change? It doesn't benefit them. But then if that, if that was the case, I wouldn't have a purpose. Because if all the cool money shit was taught in schools, I wouldn't be making millions teaching people all the cool money shit. So I'm not fucking complaining. 
No, uh, I, but I, I, I guess, um, and it, you know, this is an interesting sort of point. I don't, we don't normally talk about this this either on the podcast, but it, I, I suppose it's when you, you, when I listen to you, or I know people listen to you. It, it can be, it can come across in in some ways where it is about. The things and the Lamborghinis, and 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 that is definitely attracts a lot. Of I only people. have one Lamborghini. I know. Okay. I don't have 10. All right. <laughs> and the Ferraris and the Porsches <laughs> and the Range Rovers. <laughs> but but the the thing is, on a really on a very basic, you know, like strip Rob back to his kind of nice and kind part, and not the ruthless business person. It would seem as though what one of the things that you're kind of doing is, is in in your teaching is you is you're just probably giving people some basic you know people who are there's a lot of people who who are really struggling you know and they're they're not in a great position and um, and they probably can't even put the heat on in in, in certainly if you re- listen to the news and watch the news and and I suppose some of this basic stuff seems as though it's very important to, to kind of get it out to you know get some of these tools out one is to say look it's not you're not helpless and and it isn't a rig system and it's, it doesn't mean that there's no way you can actually get out of it because I, I i do feel that there's you know you it's very easy to get I've, I've been there certainly myself you can get into this hopeless position where look, i don't even think i'm ever going to do that because it's just you've got to be lucky or or gifted or, or what have you I, I think there's definitely a place to teach people look that isn't the reality and what you said is look you know making money isn't about being in the right place at the right time or anything there's a system and if you follow that system you can um you you can kind of improve your life have you ever thought about doing what you're doing to sort of like a part maybe you are doing it but a part of the community that just really fucking needs that talking to so the challenge with teaching people how to make money be financially independent just like teaching people how to be healthy they have to want it themselves first and um i have tried to help a lot of people a lot of underprivileged people a lot of unfortunate people because when you talk about materialism the error that people can make is they then assume oh well then you're not philanthropic or you know you don't do kind things that's not true um because by the way how many people when they're a kid aspire to drive a skoda none how many people aspire to drive a lamborghini more so when you have a lamborghini you don't just represent owning a lamborghini you represent what you do to own a Lamborghini and the inspiration you have to other people. And I know that because I often take get my Lamborghini and I take um, friends and um, sort of teenagers to their proms and things like mm-hmm. that. And no one asked to be dropped off to a prom in a Skoda. No one. Everyone asked to be dropped off to a prom in your Lamborghini. So there's a lot of great things that, you know, these material items represent. My favourite car when I was... Nine years old was a Ferrari Testarossa, and I bought one for cash in my 30s. It wasn't just a Ferrari Testarossa. Like anyone can think what they want. No, no, no. That was the car I wanted when I was nine years old, and the journey of getting to the mid 30s and being able to buy one outright. So there's way more in materials than people actually really think. But, but is, is some of but that. People to have do... to want to change, Matt. Yeah. Uh, I was sorry, okay, I know, I know uh, it seems on, like... Carry on, finish your point. Yeah, yeah, because what I try and do is answer, answer the questions we didn't it's, finish. It's, it's the champagne. That... <laughs> Nothing wrong with mine, I've <laughs> drunk it. You haven't drunk any, give me some I'm of yours. I'm being careful because I've got all these open questions to close with you. But... Yeah, um, so 
people have to want to change. And so I can go to all these impoverished places and talk to all these impoverished people. And I often do, by the way. And is that kids or sort of... Well, it like, could be any... It, like, it's not just kids. You know, it's, it's is there just, an age where people are sort of like, actually, they're, they're not been even conditioned to not to sort of not have that because because I sense like kids are in most cases they're not even had that I can't be bothered to do it they seem to be receptive whatever you put in kids minds they they just seep it yeah, up I think if they're young enough yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um but the, the core message to the your question is people have to want to change so I can spend my life banging the drum to people who don't give a fuck and don't want to change and th- so all I can do is do my thing. I yeah, tell, yeah. In terms of marketing or content, here's, the, I think, the best way. Get your message out to the world, look after as many people as possible and pull them to you. And mm. all the people that need to hear it will come to you. You know, I, the thing is, I could go to schools and I've gone to some, but when I go to schools, I'm going to tell it how it is and the schools aren't going to have me back. Well, that's another <laughs> thing, yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I could go to, I speak to people on the streets in Peterborough. You know, I often drive in my fancy car up to Costa Coffee and I speak to people on the streets in Peterborough. They're not interested in getting a job. Don't you think, though? That's that's right. And and I, I think there's some science about, you know, learning in general. And there's a certain age where um, I think even in, in sports and that where you just can't teach people anymore. They've got to a certain age. But there's a certain, you know, up to a certain age, they're very receptive and they're, you know, they're, they are sort of their brains are, can be molded and they mm. can be influenced in a positive way. And I, I just wondered if it's to to get to sort of a younger group of people because you never get kids that say, I don't want to learn English. I don't want to. Learn. Well, they do say I don't want to learn English and maths, but you just learn it. I don't know how the hell I learned it because I used to hate even going to school. But somehow I learned English and maths and a little bit of French and uh, a few other things miraculously. So is there anything where I just feel that there's something and I'm not saying you should do it, but maybe you should. Um, Getting, getting kids, I'd love my daughter to learn it, and I, she listens to all kinds of stuff on um, you know, podcasts and things, but it's when they listen to a podcast of someone, they're, they're actually telling me in a, in a deeper way than I've even learned the information. And, mm. and so maybe sort of impacting that younger generation in some of these, just the, basic, the basics, in what you've said about where to put your money, how to earn it, how to, why you should set up a business, why you should pay tax at the end, not at the beginning. Just a few simple tricks there yeah. that kids could probably learn and they would have a very different you know, course and options in their life and probably going through what, what you get taught in school. So I have my More Money Secrets TikTok channel and I do content every day on there. I do the Young Entrepreneurs Summit once a year. Um, and when lockdown happened, um, I allowed, and I still do, kids, all kids can come for free and join my membership site with their parents' membership. Oh. So I do do quite a lot. It's probably really something I don't particularly advertise because hmm. it's not, you know, I'm not necessarily focused on a niche of young kids. I'm focused on everyone. Hmm. But you asking that question triggered me to think, yeah, I do do quite a lot of that. Maybe I need to write a financial related book for a younger demographic. I've thought about it With a lot. pictures. But, yeah, but um, the problem is, <laughs> not to 7, 7 to 11, yeah. 11, 15, 15 to 18, it's all really different. Mm-hmm. You couldn't write a book from 2 to 18. So you actually got to write four different books. And um, I've written a lot of books already. And I have thought about creating a series and taking them up through their journey. And maybe one day. I'm definitely not against it, and I'll probably do more than I think. Um, but TikTok, 
it's a good place to start. And, and I know we're going along quite a while, but I want to just sort of wrap off in I'm, terms I'm, of... I'm cool, by the way, you're, you're good. You oh, okay, yeah, okay. Good. Well, then, well, then that's good. The, the personal branding side of things from a business perspective, I've had a lot of discussions with our own business. I've talked to a lot of people. Like You, you obviously put a lot of value on um, you as the owner of the business, spending a lot of time on TikTok and you're on YouTube. You're on it. You're everywhere. Um, and you also run a large company and you have a large training organization. How and why do you decide to, to invest um, such what's, what's seemingly a large portion of your time creating information um, for free to put out on things like social media as opposed to, and maybe you do the both, but it seems as though you do a lot more than, than the average sort of owner and entrepreneur. Why, why is that such an important thing for you to do in terms of your, your personal business goals? Okay, so I really enjoy it, number one. Um, I relatively find it easy compared to a lot of other tasks I might have to do in my day, number two. Number three, it generates me a lot of business. Number four, it's a great industry right now. So, you know, people were all learning about manufacturing 78 years ago. They were all working in the factories. And now kids are on YouTube and, you know, business entrepreneurs, you know, old school people like you and I are starting podcasts. So, you know, being a creator is uh, a big thing. Also, there's so much going on in the world and there's a lot of fear and panic. And I think people need direction and they need inspiration and they need guidance and they need hope and they need education. And the best way to do that is content. Um, you know, because they can start for free and then they can pay when they're ready. So, yeah, all those reasons. How much time should someone of a, a, an equal, an owner, entrepreneur, business leader, do you think, how much time makes sense to dedicate in that, that, that type of area? Like, do you have any kind of like, oh, well, I'm going to put 20% of my time into that, particularly if you're starting a business? Because when you're starting a business, you, you've, or, or you're changing a career and, and trying to build your brand, that you've got a lot of things that you, you've, you've, you've got to learn. Like, would, would, it, would you advise someone get all the basics done and then put this in, put this in at, at the end when you've finished everything else? Or would you encourage you, people to, to put this at the beginning of what they do so it's kind of higher up on the priority and then also fit everything else around it? Where does it sit? It's actually not that hard to do social media. And some, some social media is um, less time and labor intensive than others, depending on what your flow is. So um, going live, I find pretty easy. Don't have to do too much planning. Don't have any notes. Go live every day for 15 minutes. 15 minutes is long enough to go live. 15 minutes a day. In a year, you've done 365 pieces of content. Who knows how many clients or how many new followers or how much reach or how many people have seen that. Um, obviously, there's TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all these different platforms. Obviously, as we know, doing longer form content, you've got equipment, you've got a lot more research. So you've got a lot more things to think about. So if you have very minimal time because you've putting a lot of time into high income generating tasks in your companies, probably start with just general, simple social media, like just putting content on TikTok and doing lives on, the, on a few channels. Um, if you can afford a little bit more time, I do what we do. 
So what we do is we do long form content, but then we chop it all up into all the other socials. So if you look at my other TikTok channel, Rob More Progressive, it's all just cuts of my longer form interviews. My longer form interviews go on YouTube and my podcast and on TikTok and sometimes on other channels. So if you've got a bit more time, do long form, cut it into short form and put it on all socials. If you haven't got much time, just do some lives or go straight to the channels. But my, people look at me like I must be on social media 25 hours a day. <laughs> I do a Facebook live for on average probably 15 minutes at 8.30 a.m. I do probably two podcast interviews a week now because I was trying to build up the bank and get ahead. Um, so it's probably two. I probably write four or five pieces a week, which are no more than 800 words. Um, I don't think I do any more than that. And then the rest is all cut and repurpose. Repurposing is the big secret. Because if you've got enough of your main piece, like this could be cut into so many pieces of content. You know, I was thinking the bit I talked about, the pharmaceutical industry, that's a TikTok, that'd probably do quite well. You know, all the stuff about money and schools, that's content. So you could have your main YouTube episode, your main podcast episode. You could have at least another eight shorts from this for YouTube and a shitload of TikToks. So it's just being smart with your time. Mm. What's your outcome of doing that then? When, you, when you're doing social media, are you doing it to just to, for people to know you, like you, start to trust you? How, how, how do you look at it? And, and is there any advice on how people should look at it? Because you can, you can also say, well, look, maybe it's not for me. Um, I'm not great on camera. Um, it's for someone else. It'll be interesting to get your philosophy in terms of what what's the goal for why why are you on TikTok, YouTube, etc. What what does it mean for Rob Moore and Progressive? Um, you know those two two businesses. Okay, so I want to build as large a following as I humanly can in my life, so that I can impact as many people as possible, so that I can be as valuable as possible. Okay which is part of the journey towards success, which we started about on question one. I'd like to make a good few hundred million doing that as well along the journey because, you know. Tomorrow Lamborghini. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> because I like making money. Money is the physical manifested form of the work and the energy that you put into your brand. If you spent 10 years building a company and made no money, you'd probably feel like you're not successful. So money is a part of the outcome and the measure of success. So vast numbers of people, deep impact, plenty of money. Also, um, ads are expensive right now. So people who find me on social media, that doesn't cost me anything. So I spend 350 grand often a month on ads, I'd like to halve that. So obviously organic social media reduces ad spend. And because it's the place to be. Social media and content, it's where all the big players are. I want to, want to be where all the big players are. <laughs> why, why would I not want to be there? <laughs> why don't you want to be up there with the, with the, with the greats? Yeah. Education is, is a theme that runs through. Your, your, you have a property, I believe it's the UK's largest property company. Mm, yeah, training business. Yeah. Training business, training and education. Um, what... Should I guess I'm you know we're in the fitness industry. Um, we we sell fitness equipment. We work with gyms who sell um, 
sell basically um, the idea is that they get people fit and healthy and six packs and lose weight, etc. Um, but a lot of certainly a lot of the people that we work with, the the people that are educating predominantly about health and nutrition and diet and recovery are not the big brands. So if, if you were a fitness business, for example, you would have you know progressive gyms and you'd have probably have hundreds of gyms across the country. And then there's Rob Moore who owns uh, progressive gyms. And you would be creating all this content and courses and, and um, workshops and, and, and a whole business that seem, would seemingly, if, if I had to mirror you, would seemingly be an education business that would went along with your gym business. If I think about your property company and your education company. Why do you think a lot of businesses, and I'm, I'm only using gyms as an example, but you could use this for garden centers or, or you know, people who make ovens and all kinds of things. Why do you think more companies are not doing those two things together? And do you think that that's a really important recipe to put a physical goods or physical services business and put it together with a, a really bloody good education business? So it's not education is not for everyone. My business partner, he doesn't really like it. He doesn't like social media. He doesn't ever do a live. He doesn't ever put content out there. He likes to watch and observe. So maybe not educating is for everyone. I mean, if all 8 billion people on this planet were educators, who's being educated? <laughs> so that's reason number one. Maybe reason number two is they don't understand how good a business model it is. Because if, yeah, if they understood, maybe they'd do it more. Because when lockdown happens and your business gets shut down because you've got to make physical equipment, um, education might be the only way you pay your bills and carry on trading because education can be done online. Education is... Not always, because we have 140 something staff in the office and the outsourcers, so it's getting a bit big. But generally, as a model, education is low cost, high margin. Because what assets do you need to start an education business? Knowledge. You don't need manufacturing, machinery, plant. You don't need all of that. You just need knowledge. You can use the platforms that are free on social media to deliver that knowledge, whereas you have to use supply chains and you know you have to wholesale and retail and all of that. So it's really low cost, high margin, and it's quick and easy to set up. You don't need inventions, trademarks, all of that. I mean, a lot of education is just you know people regurgitating what they learn from other people. So it's a brilliant business model in in that respect. And actually, you know, we have. 1,250 tenants across hundreds of properties that we own in this city. And um, many years our training business has made a lot more and it has a lot less debt. You know, we have tens of millions of pounds worth of debt on our property portfolio, you know, mortgages. Um, we have no debt on this business. I don't even think we lease a computer. All right, we might have a couple of our cars on lease because it's a better use of money, but we don't really have any debt. So education's great business model. Why don't people do it more? They don't understand how good a business model it is. They think that it's not for them. Um, some people are a bit worried that they'll get judged. So I remember being taught really early in my education businesses, do not create your content for your peers. Create your content for your market. So if I wanted to impress you with my content, I'd go super high level and super advanced and articulate. But what about a newbie starting up? 
I'd be a very different type of language and a very different type of content. So what most people do is they're so worried about what their peers would mm -hmm. think. They create content for their peers, but their peers is not their market. <laughs> their market is the millions of people over here. So I use very simple language. I actually did well in English and I actually got a good voc vocabulary, but I never use any long words, none. Only words everyone can understand. Talk in a very simple way. Because my market is millions of people, my peers are hundreds of people. So I think a lot of people are scared of how their peers would judge them so they don't do any education. Is education also a difficult business to master? Um, be because, I, I, again, using the, the fitness space, Peloton have obviously done extremely well. They, they um, were unknown in our industry and then suddenly this company appeared and you could you could argue that they're selling education or or, tra or training or showing you how to, to work out and and suddenly this company grew up and they they were bigger than the whole industry put together is one single company so I, I just wondered if you if do you see any parallels between what you're doing and i'm specifically aiming this question at the fitness industry or anyone that's kind of in a similar space but do you see any similarities between what say a Peloton have done to an exercise bike, um, or is is there a, a different way that people can be looking? And this is this is kind of almost like a little bit of a selfish question, really. But but if if I owned a gym or I owned a, an equipment company, it seems that there's a lot of people giving away free and cheap content. How what would be some of the ways that we could look at that to 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 make it a, su a successful model? when it's, it's very competitive and you've got people like Peloton that seem to have you know, right, risen and fallen from that. Yeah, so the first thing you have to look at when you see a very successful company is you think they've come out of nowhere, but maybe they haven't, maybe they've been doing it a long time. Like a lot of people said, well, Andrew Tate, I didn't know him six months ago. And he's been doing content for years. The next thing you have to look at is, did they have hundreds of millions or billions worth of capital injected by VCs and et cetera, because we could have been 10 times bigger and I could own 5% of my company. I own 50% of my company and my business partner owns 50% of the company. And I'm, I'd quite rather be a little bit smaller, but own 50%, not 5%. So you've got to look at those factors before you judge. Because if I gave you 10 billion pounds, I bet you could do a Peloton with what you know, but you haven't got 10 billion pounds, I'm guessing. So you've got to look at those factors. Um, but um, business models that are smashing it right now are business models that have recurring billing. Mm. So, you know, there are some companies that don't really care about the hardware. They care about the software. Because the software, you could have 10 million members, 100 million members. So obviously Netflix is an example mm. of a company mm. that up until very recently were doing really well based on recurring billing. So going back to the fitness industry, if you can find a way to get recurring billing through ongoing education or software, as well as hardware, I think that's how you win. Because you know what it's like with hardware. Those margins can be thin mm -hmm. and you only need a little bit of currency swap and they're even thinner. Um, so that's the risk with hardware, and Jim generally is a hardware business. Well, you're limited to, but there's, there's certain constraints, I guess, in terms of, okay, well, where is it based? Yeah, um, so you've got a localized big, market. How big is it? Yeah. 
And and then, you know, I guess the cost to build it, you know, there's, which, which well, in, in, as it relates to sort of how much How much does charge. the average gym cost to set up? Well, I guess all in all, and there's a, there's a number of different models, but I would say you're probably on the low end of a boutique, you're probably half a million to 750. And then the average probably 1.5 to 2. And then the bigger ones are obviously a lot more. So right. maybe a sweet spot on average could be around about, let's say, a million-ish. Roughly. Yeah. But to start a £30 a month subscription teaching people about fitness costs you virtually nothing. What do you need? I mean, all these people now are doing the home-based workouts and, and things like that. But it's so, very com- I guess it's very competitive. Uh, to, honestly, I just ignore that word. Like, if you're the best, you don't give a fuck about the competition. And I, I, I don't know anyone who's in an industry that says, you know what, my industry, nah, it's not competitive. Everyone <laughs> thinks their industry is competitive. Yeah. And yes, you could say fitness is competitive, but financial education is competitive. Real estate is competitive. Imagine going on the high street retail. That's competitive. Fashion is competitive. Food is competitive. Insurance. I mean, trying to, imagine trying to set up an insurance company. So actually... Like, I mean, I might be being a bit um, basic here, but I don't really care if it's competitive. I care if I think I can do it. And what in the training business then, which is, and that's a great point to make um, and, and, to, and to sort of meditate way, on. You, but you should probably not shout that to everyone because you <laughs> want everyone to think it's competitive because then you don't have as many people in the market. But So how do, you, how do you kind of differentiate an education company? Is it purely about quality? So somehow if you, it's either you or a partner or someone in your team that can provide great quality. Is it about the distribution? You've got to do a really good job like you do of getting your name and your brand out there mm. or is it all the above? Well, I'm friends with some people in the fitness industry that are absolutely smashing it because they've built a decent personal brand. Jay Alderton, James Smith, people like that who are just... They won't mind me saying, it's not disrespectful, but essentially they're just fit guys who do personal training. And now all of a sudden they've got millions of followers from TikTok and Facebook and YouTube. And now all of a sudden, I mean, James Smith is walking around the country filling venues of thousands of people. And all he's done, he's done interesting content on social media. So would you rather be the fittest, strongest, best trainer in the world with five clients or not bad with 10 million followers? you've got to think about it. But as long as you know what you teach is credible, I think if people in the fitness space want to really grow their business, they should take a personal brand and having followers really seriously, more seriously than they do. So just, just to pause that a second, so I can kind of keep up with everything so let's say rob moore's gym right you've got one location in peterborough okay it's not london it's not you know, manchester whatever it's in peterborough and i've not I don't, i'm sure it exists there's there's one or two boutiques but could you say like okay it's rob moore's gym in peterborough um and instead of it, it, it does can you have your personal brand and your gym connected or because a lot of these people the jay aldertons and, and and many others they're individuals that um, that have an edu- the content business and then they start doing deals with, with clothing and supplements and all you know products and that kind of thing. But could you reverse that and say, okay, it's Rob Moore's gym. Now I'm going to, because I am an expert because I've got a bloody gym and I've just spent a couple of million building it out and I've been here for 30 years. Could Rob Moore's gym have that 
same thing, fill venues and everything, or, or do you have to sort of separate yourself from, from the business? You, you seem to have got a nice balance between progressive brand and the Rob Moore brand and the disruptive entrepreneur. They seem to kind of work quite nicely together. What, what are your thoughts on that then? Well, I interviewed David Lloyd. Okay, yeah. And um, he did pretty well at both because <laughs> the gym was his name. Tom Ford, who used just to sold his business for two point eight billion. <laughs> two point eight billion. So I must admit, with the personal brand, when I started, I built a personal brand, and actually built. The good thing about a personal brand is you can build a company quick. So Joe Wicks, out of no, not out of nowhere, obviously, but in lockdown, out of nowhere, Joe Wicks was massive. Boom personal brand and then you get taught by all the business schools oh but you don't want a personal brand because you can't exit the personal brand well tom ford just did (laughs) but what he did is he made his personal brand also his company brand so it is a personal brand but tom ford is also a brand brand a business brand so um you know you might want to call your gyms escape and you might want to be matt janjasek the personal brand or you might want to call it obviously your name's not that easy to remember so you might not call it the Janusek gyms. It took me five years to learn how to spell your name. But um, you could do both. But actually, Matt, it probably needs context here. Who are we talking about? Because if we're talking about the average PT, what they shouldn't be spending 200, 500, a million to start a gym yet. What they should do is build a personal brand, do online personal training and do online coaching and accountability and get really good at getting followers and people bought into them. Because, you know, James Smith, he's he's got some muscles, but he's not like, you know, a Greek statue. He's more of a like teaching you sort of practical, real things, um, and, you know, for the everyday person. So he's found a niche. Joe Wicks has found a niche. Jay Alderson's got his niche. You've, all, you've got your niche. There's women over 40 personal trainers. There's women over 60 personal trainers. So there's loads of niches. But um, you need a niche. Is that... Is that a sort I think of when you thing? start, it's probably smart because I know I said competition, you've, you know, that's way overplayed. But obviously health and fitness, there are quite a lot of people in that space. But um, it's also a really growing industry because more and more people are caring about their health and fitness now than, than they were. Um, but it's probably what, like my wife was nearly thinking about doing this. She's 44. And um, she was worried about, she's in really good shape. She's got so much knowledge of food. She's very lean. She's, you know, but she's not a social media confident person. And she was thinking about doing this, but she was a bit concerned. And I said to her, why don't you um, go for women over 40 or women who've had children? So to be her client, you have to have had a child or be over 40 or both. All of a sudden, all those women who are, had a child and over 40 and don't want to go to a spit and sawdust gym or don't want to go to a poser's gym, all of it, you know, they need someone like my Who wife. understands because she's been through it. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you are 21 and you want to pose, be, you know, be the poser's brand because there's nothing wrong with that because that's a thing. So yeah, it probably is wise to find a niche, but you should probably build a gym later, not first. Um, and as you know, the cost to start is high and, you know, you need to get a big membership to pay that back and then have an, and then all you have to have is a lockdown or lose a few members to a new gym that opens up like a bar. Cause I don't know how many thousands of members you need to make a good profit. Obviously it depends on your outlay, mm. but if a new gym opens and you lose 500 members, you could be screwed. But on, on a member of 70 pound a month, you might have a very low net profit. But £30 a month on an online program, you might have 
95% profit when you start. So I think that's a good place to start at least. Mm. Wrapping up then, Rob, I, I, I watched your TikTok actually, um, and uh, I thought I'd check that out. I'm not on TikTok, my daughter is, and um, but your, your content's a little bit different to hers. I, I thought I might see, I was trying to figure out what's Rob going to be doing on TikTok, and I thought you'd be doing these funny dances and stuff, but it was actually really good, good content. And one of the posts you did is you did your top two books. And so the first one, which I read, was you say one of your one of your top number one books was Think and Grow Rich, and I was I was curious why was that your number one book, and and what would you say were some of the things that you applied from that, you know, uh, that, yeah. that made a difference to you? Okay, so Think and Grow Rich was one of the first three books I read that wasn't fiction, i.e., it's personal development nonfiction, and why I thought it was great was one I'd never read anything like it. Two, I was broke, so it was like, well, wow. Um, but the, the main thing I took from Think and Grow Rich, or the main two things, were visualization and mastermind. So the main concept of Think and Grow Rich um, is the concept of a mastermind, which is instead of trying to do everything yourself and fail yourself and struggle yourself and learn yourself, you leverage the collective power of the experienced minds of other people. And um, in the book, um, Napoleon Hill talks about a physical mastermind. Like imagine if you've got six billionaires who are your advisors, it's gonna be hard not to be the seventh billionaire. But he also talked about it in his mind. So he would in his mind picture a, a boardroom table with all the billionaires, whether it was Andrew Carnegie or, or you know, whoever was the billionaire and he would imagine what they would say when he had a, a problem or a question. And so those two elements of a mastermind physically and a mastermind in your mind were probably the two major things I got from that book. And um, so I do quite a lot of visualization. Um, I'm a good sleeper, so often I try and visualize and I get to sleep quickly. Mm. Um, but um, I try and visualize most evenings, even with my martial arts that I do, um, my instructor told me a lot of a good, really good way to practice is to close your eyes and imagine being attacked and move your, do your moves through your mind. So I do a lot of my moves in my mind. Um, and often you pose a question out in a mastermind imagined in your mind in the evening and you might have an answer in the morning or you might have an answer the next day. Um, I do believe what you think about, you bring about. Um, and I do believe um, that there's some forces in the universe we probably fully don't understand yet and many have got theories on it whether it's law of attraction or the unified field or whatever or some kind of theory of energy whereby you, your thoughts have attractive qualities whereby um, thoughts must have some kind of energy we can't see that has an attraction element um, Joe Vitale who I interviewed who's my friend who was on The Secret he believes this some kind of connected field that we can't see. He has a name for it, whereby all thoughts connect us and we attract what we need um, in our lives based on our thoughts. Um, but I also learned from all of the personal development books, in addition to this, is you've got to get out there and take action. So in, in every personal development book I've ever read, it basically says, take action. Whether you're scared, whether you don't know what to do, whether you've not got all the dots connected, just fucking do it. Um, 
And no one really wants to hear that, do they? No one really wants to hear, just fucking get out there and try it. They want some magic formula or secret. Hack. Yeah, hack. But actually, sometimes <clears throat> the biggest hack is just do it. Go on Patreon and set up your membership site and start talking about it on Instagram Lives. Open a Word document and start writing your book. What's wrong with that? The second one was Total Recall. And the bit that interested me about that, and, and I've, I've, I've heard definitely sort of two different views on this, was the multiple streams of income uh, sort of um, sort of topic. And I wanted to know from you, when you think about that, do you, do you relate to that in terms of where you are in your business? So let's say you're starting your business. Uh, um, how should you think about the multiple streams of income? Should you go into your business and, okay, like, I'm going to need to set something up with a, n- a number of different things, or should I go into <clears throat> a new business saying, look, I'm going to focus, build the brand, and then from that brand, I'm going to go and sort of expand it into other things? Yeah, so I wrote a book called Multiple Streams of Property Income. So this was about property, but actually I realized it's not, it's about everything. So I'm going to go back to an earlier comment I made that people and social media doesn't like the idea of a paradox. It wants A or B, left or right. But actually, I'm going to go there. If you do one thing, what if that thing is wrong? What if the government lock you down and you can't do that thing anymore? What if that industry... Yeah. What if that industry collapses? You're going to wish you had other income streams. What if you do seven things? You're writing a book, you're doing a podcast, you're doing a YouTube, you're investing in the stock market, you're doing crypto. You're thin, you're distracted, you're getting nowhere. So actually, either extreme is probably not the best play. Even the people you think, yeah, but... Elon Musk, yeah, but he's got three major companies and he's just bloody bought Twitter. (laughs) Warren Buffett makes money from speaking and other engagements as well as his um, stock market portfolio, of which he's got diversified assets. So I actually think the balance is somewhere in the middle, Matt, whereby 70% of your time you want to focus on your main thing. 20% of your time you might want to focus on your side hustle or your second thing. And then maybe 10% of your time you're looking into future things. But if you never started your podcast, you wouldn't be here. But you know you can't do your podcast all day every day because you've got a big business to run. If you just ran your big business and then lockdown happens, that must have been hard for you. It was hard for us. You're probably glad that you've got content. Um, so it's probably 70, 20, 10. 70% of your time on your main income stream, 20% on your second and 10 on everything else. Mm. So you've almost got a bit of a, a hedge in some respect against the... The, the sort of upside, like if you was an investor, you'd have something that would kind of balance it out. I think that's the challenge. Some, it, it's very easy to take a lot of stuff you see on social media, literally, and it's like, okay, you've either got to do this or you've got to do this. And do you find that a lot of times the truth could be somewhere in this sort of broader middle ground that you've got to just sort of define exactly where you, you sit on that in most cases, would you say? I think any information is potentially useful or potentially harmful without the right context. So, you know, go all in. That's a, an American term basically for one business model, singular focus at the expense of everything else. In the wrong context, that's really fucking bad advice. Like go all in on um, Down your bridges. one crypto because it's going to be, go to the moon. Really bad advice. So... Um, 
One thing a lot of people who invest in themselves and learn, which is smart, I mean, most of the planet don't, those that do, they find it hard to contextualize because you've got these different influencers saying these different things. But the important thing is you've got to take the information and then you've got to finish the final part. There's plenty of people I really respect whose information is completely useless to me. There's plenty of people I think are fucking idiots and I've, I can learn a lot from them and a lot of their information is very relevant to me. So it's context is the important part. I would never say to any, anyone, don't read any, any books or podcasts for the next 12 months, but I've read three to 4,000 books and I've listened to 10,000 podcast episodes. So it's good information for me and context for me to stop for a bit. I'm actually now hearing my own thoughts because when you listen to podcasts and books all the time, you don't hear your own thoughts. You hear other people's thoughts. Mm. Now, I'm going to clearly go back and read a load of books and listen to a load of podcasts, but I don't play, like, I don't play music in the car. I go to my coffee in complete silence. I do my um, Wim Hof breathing exercises to go and get my coffee. And I can think about all the shit I've got going on. But if I was starting out, I've got nothing to think about. But I've been doing business 16 years. I actually don't want to learn anything new the next two years. I know what I've got to do. You just go execute. Yeah, I've got two or three big projects. <laughs> I know I've got to do them. And they will make me 25, 50 or even 100 million pounds. So I don't need to read any books. Um, so, Because I remember, for example, you were the one that introduced me to Joe Dispenza. And I gobbled all those books up when you, because whenever we, I always listen to your recommendations and read them all. And it was really useful stuff. I didn't really do anything with it because I didn't really have time to work on it mm. all. Because Joe's work, you need to work on it. Mm. You really need to work on it. So, yeah, that's context. Uh, like, I'm not going to read any books or listen to any podcasts for the next six months other than my own. <laughs> mm. um, because that's where I'm at right now. I think that's, that's also the challenge is you'll get – you, it's easy to sort of – if you are consuming it, you'll get these little clips – and some of them sound as though they make sense and they can resonate. But I think, and most people who I've even spoke to, including you today, you go under, you, you go deeper. And some of the things need a 20 minutes or 30 minutes to even explain for you to fully, mm. oh, okay, well, that's what you mean. Even if someone's speaking English and you know them, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's what you mean. Yeah. And I think so much in the world today is we get these short clips of information. We absorb it and we're almost like, okay, we'll go over here and we go over here. Mm. And... And the same, the, the comment you make about podcasts, people can listen to it and it's like, oh yeah, don't need to learn anything now. Like Rob's not doing podcasts, so we don't need to read podcasts. Where it's like, as you say, context. Yeah, but he's been doing it for a long time. He's having a little bit of, he's fasting yeah. for a period of time. <laughs> because now, like 10 years ago, I might want to learn loads of stuff. I actually now know I've got three main projects for the next two years. They're my big projects. Mm. Anything that distracts me from those three projects, I should not touch. Now, if it was a book or a podcast on the topic, and by the way, I'm still meeting a lot of people and having one-to-one -one conversations. But, you know, if I wanted to learn about a fitness business, I probably wouldn't list a fitness podcast in this six-month period. I'd call you up and I'd have dinner with you for two hours and I'd ply you with champagne <laughs> and I'd ask you because I can contextualize it. So, yeah, context, I think, is really important. Last question then, Rob. Escape Your Limits is about escaping what you believed is impossible and gone on to make it possible. 
During this like last kind of crazy pandemic period, what would be a personally personal example of you escaping your own personal limits? Um, conflict. Yeah. So um, I naturally hate conflict. I'm a really? so, yeah. I naturally hate it. Um, I was a fat kid in school. I managed to get liked by most people as a coping mechanism. Found ways to build good connections with everyone. Um, and one of those ways was, was to avoid conflicts at all costs. But when you end up, what happens is if you avoid conflict with others, you have conflict inside yourself. So I was riddled with self-conflict because I avoided external conflict. But um, one great thing about being an entrepreneur is you have to learn conflict because you have to fire people. You have to negotiate with suppliers. You have to have haters. And, you know, some people love conflict. We all know those kinds of people. I hate conflict. Even to this day, I can feel myself like, inside from, you know, the 11 year old me. But that's one thing I've really developed and escaped my limits on is like I embrace conflict now. And if there's an issue, I'll dig it out and find it instead of avoiding it. And if someone needs to be fired, I will go and fire them myself. And if someone needs to be performance managed, I will do it. And if I can sense someone's got a problem, but they're not telling me, I'll dig until I find that problem. And I'll, I'll spend every day finding as many problems as I can so that I can fix them. But I spent 32 years avoiding that. What was the awakening that that sort of tip you talked earlier about these tipping points where suddenly you've had enough. What, what was the, the, the moment? Right. So um, I believe if things are easy now, they'll be hard later. And I believe if they're hard now, they'll be easy later. So, um, you know, it's easy to take the choice to eat some unhealthy food in the moment. It's actually hard to not drink and to eat really lean food because sugar's fucking addictive and getting really good food takes a lot of extra effort. I'm preaching to the choir here. It's easy to eat shit and drink shit. It's actually hard to be really disciplined. But when you're 85 and you're ripped, you'll be so glad. It'll be easy later because it was harder now. So with conflict, it's as simple as this in my view. Um, the harder it is now, the easier it'll be later. But if you make it easier now by avoiding it, like, imagine your relationship. You know something's wrong with your husband or wife and you just avoid it and you never, ever dare go there. And then you find out three years later they have had a fucking affair or you had an affair because you didn't go to that place that where you were scared about what might be said. That's another thing which links back to something I said earlier, which is when you face the fear and you let it go, then you can deal with conflict because I would I would worry about conflict with my staff in case they leave. But I don't mind if they leave now, because if they leave, it's not right. So I can go to that place of conflict. So that was huge for me, like huge. Like still is a bit of I have to work on it every day. But I mean, regularly, daily, I'm having multiple conflicts and really enjoying it. <laughs> not with you. I don't think we've ever had a conflict. No, I don't think Maybe so. we need one. What do you hate about me? Um, but yeah, that I am um, talking about escaping your limits. That, that was a real limiter for me because, you know, people ask, well, you know, should you be ruthless in business? You, you can get by in business not being ruthless, but you must face conflicts. Do you think, you know, do you think it's a case of you've got to be honest 
as well. Like you got it, like because I guess in a lot of cases we know the truth. Truth is the truth, but sometimes maybe we lie to ourselves about the truth, and 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 then we we for whatever reason we don't want to say what we think. Yeah. And sometimes it's better to go through the pain. And my wife's Dutch; they're very direct people. <laughs> And I've learned a bit from those. I yeah. just say it. It ends up pissing people off. But it, it's uh, sometimes it's like, look, it's better to just be honest with each other. It saves yeah. a lot of bullshit in the long run. <laughs> I completely agree. John Demartini said to me, if you have a choice between pissing someone else off or pissing yourself off, always choose them. <laughs> and in the moment when you create conflict and you speak truth, you piss them off. But if you don't, you end up holding it inside. And by the way, some people listen to this are good at conflict. Some people are the opposite. They need to have less conflict because they're fucking picking fights with everyone. Yeah. But I just was never that guy. I would never pick a fight with anyone. So um, truth, oh, man, I mean, and I know we're about to end now. I mean, what is true? Because we can convince ourselves that anything is true if we're good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I don't know about truth because I think truth is a perception. But um, Maybe it's truth as it relates to your own values of truth. And if you have good values... You, you're truthful as it relates to those potentially. I don't know. You're right. Truth could be yeah. anything, and it's difficult nowadays to know what the different what truth is or isn't. But well, uh, another thing I think is um, trust emotions less and data more. So mm. um, you know, people say, "Oh yeah, I just go on my gut feeling." Well, I actually think that's pretty stupid. Here's why: because your gut feeling is just an emotion, and emotions are volatile and transient. Whereas um, you know, is this person likely to change or not? If they're likely to change, keep them. If they're not likely to change, let them go. What do you... You know, if someone's cheated on you five times, what mm. are they likely to do next? Mm. Yet you stay with them. So but so if you look at facts and data, because like, oh, I think all this gut instinct, oh, I just knew. No, you fucking didn't. No, you didn't. You were, I think a gut instinct is way overrated. My wife, I, if you speak to... Oh, and I'll use women, not for a rock, but generally my wife and and certain women seem to have honed that ability for instinct, whatever you call it. They seem to have this other sense that maybe men are too stupid to kind of pick up on. But they seem to, I, I, I trust, I don't trust my gut, but I trust my wife's gut because somehow... Even if, I like, if, if I've got some people I'm not sure whether I, I can trust them or not or like them or not, my wife will tell me whether I can and, and I've yeah. never known her not to be right. They seem yeah. to have this other... So is that instinct, is that gut, I don't know. Or is there, is there other forms of intuition that sort of certain people are more tuned into? Maybe yeah, maybe. It, deep. What, it, what it probably is, is it's probably over the years a lot of skills and experience honed into an emotional recall. Maybe, yeah. Because, you know, you might have a, a, a nose for a deal. You don't have a nose for a deal. You've done a fucking load of deals. Yeah. And you've just got all that experience. But, you know, what we have to be careful of is, um, I think a load of experience manifesting in a sensation or a feeling or a thought, that is actually experience. But what people confuse is they have emotions. Mm. And emotions is not instinct. Emotions yeah. are emotions. Um, I've sometimes thought on emotion to make decisions, but actually I was wrong because I didn't get all the information. Yeah, you're right. So get the I've information the same, yeah. first. Yeah. Well, look, we better leave it. Otherwise, we're going to be here until midnight and we'll get another bottle of champagne out soon. So um, we'll have to have a part two, I think, Rob. Cheers, everyone. Well, this is, this is kind of like you've been on my show. 
I've been on your show now. It's the second time. Second time, yeah. So yeah, we'll just keep. We'll do a series. We'll just keep going. Yeah. We'll have to get. So we'll have to get a big crate of champagne for the next one. And uh, you didn't even drink all. Yours, I know. I'm, well, because I'd lose my my chain of thought if I yeah, had I was, too much of this. I was actually just hoping it might put you off. <laughs> Thank you but so yeah. much, sir. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. 